0: Good morning. It's good to be here. It's good to be here with, I think, is about my eighth consecutive year, because I think eight years ago, Larry, you were ordained. I think I preached across the street uh, on that Sunday you were ordained, and uh, thankfully they put the College World Series roughly at about Father's Day every year, and since I'm in town, uh, Larry insists that I show up. <laughs> But I didn't know why you had to bring August weather so early this year. I was baking at the World Series yesterday. But it is good to be back with you and an opportunity to share God's word with you. Uh, today we're going to take a look at, uh, in this series that you're going through on prayer, and we're going to look at a question, literally, that Jesus' disciples asked. Now, often we say, Lord, teach us to pray, like exclamation point, when really it said, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray? I mean, will you teach us to pray? In Luke chapter 11, it says, Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's pray. Lord, our prayer today is that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, when I I read these stories, I sometimes wonder what was going on in the minds of the disciples. And I have a feeling that they had waited a fairly long time to actually ask Jesus to teach them to pray. And that's even though they would have, as regular synagogue attenders or temple attenders, prayed. They'd been already taught to pray. I mean, one of the prayers of the Jews was, you know, thank God I'm not a Gentile or even worse, a woman. That was one of the temple prayers, believe it or not. But being with Jesus for months and perhaps even as long as a year, they have watched Jesus pray in every circumstance of life. And they'd seen him taking time to be alone. They'd seen him head off in the morning, out in the wilderness, all these places. And I think they began to understand that Jesus was a little bit different than the rabbis that were in the temples or in the synagogues, that his life was entirely guided and powered by prayer. And no doubt the prayers that he was praying sounded different than those rote prayers that he would have heard they would have heard in the temple and the synagogue and i think as they stood at a distance to us that they watched him pray and realized that john was also teaching his disciples probably to pray in a slightly different fashion they finally worked up enough courage to say lord will you teach us to pray as well Now, the Lord gave them a prayer, and I really think that John 17, which we read before, is actually the Lord's Prayer. I think what we have here in Luke 11 is the disciples' prayer. He gave them a prayer to preach. Now, it was not given to be recited as a ritual, you know, like some churches beat the Lord's Prayer to death. You cannot have a church service without it. You can't have an elders' meeting without it. You can't have a church council. I mean, God forbid we'd ever not pray the Lord's Prayer when we get together. I'm not sure that Jesus gave us that prayer To use over and over again. I'm not telling you you should never say it. But sometimes we can pray it so often that we kind of forget what it's all about. But there's something tremendously important about this question. And so, will you teach us to pray? And Jesus' reply was, of course. And he starts out by saying, when you pray, and actually if you look in Matthew chapter 6, where you've got the parallel version of the Lord's Prayer, He's quoted as saying, in this manner, pray. Or when you pray, pray along these lines. In other words, I'm going to give you a pattern that you could perhaps think about when you actually pray. Now, the Lord's Prayer was given uh, to the disciples as uh, to the, uh, answer the question of how to pray. After all, that's what they asked for. How do we pray? The answer is how they should go about praying and not so much the words that they were using. So we need to recognize that there's a big difference between saying the Lord's Prayer and praying the Lord's Prayer. See, the effective prayer is not how loud you pray. I've been in some churches overseas and some in prison where I sometimes think the pastor thinks that God is so far up, he has to shout the prayers. Uh, but it doesn't make it how loud you pray. It doesn't make it as how long you pray. Uh, even if you say the Lord's Prayer over and over and over again, uh, your prayer life, will be effective if you are sincere, if you ask for the right things and you pray in Jesus' name. Now, with all of that being said, I want to take a look at the elements this morning of uh, the Lord's blueprint for prayer. And we're going to begin by looking at just the first four English words, which are, Our Father in Heaven. Now, what Jesus was teaching here was really pretty revolutionary. Uh, the word he used for father was not a formal word. It was that common Aramaic word which a child would use to address his father. He would call his father Abba. Now, of course, everybody used that word, but no one under any circumstances would ever, ever use that word in connection with God. Abba meant something like daddy. Daddy. Uh, but in, it was in a much more reverent tone. Literally, that word Abba means, my dearest father. Now, some of you kids ought to think about that. When's the last time you called your male parent, my dearest father? But that's really the essential meaning of that word Abba. Now, when Jesus came on the scene, all of his prayers were addressed to God. And he always referred to him as Abba, always referred to him as my dearest father. Now, the Gospels record Jesus using that word over 60 times in reference to God. And yet, if you look at the Old Testament, God is referred to his father only 14 times and never, never in relation like a father to a son, but always in relation to the nation of Israel, never as an individual personal father. See, no one in all the history of Israel up to that point had ever prayed like Jesus. No one had ever referred to God as their Abba. Then Jesus suddenly comes on the scene and he transforms this entire relationship with God from one of a kind of a distant, unapproachable God that the Israelites would have known in the Old Testament to a very intimate relationship. And the fact that God is our dearest Father, our Abba Father, ought to really be foundational to all of our prayers. Uh, Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 6, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying out what? Abba, Father. And see, wrapped up in those little four little words here is a new dimension in what I would call an intimate relationship with God. It's that same intimacy that ought to exist between a child and a father. Now, I opened up some uh, Father's Day cards this morning. I had a couple of them from my daughter. I like the question before, you know, what did your father teach you? Well, I'm one of those fathers who taught his son how to burp the alphabet. (laughs) (laughs) But I also did teach them some other good things, too. And my daughter reminded me of a few of them this morning. But perhaps perhaps some of you may even have a hindrance in this area because you did not have a good role model growing up. Uh, your earthly father was not around. Maybe your father was an angry sort of person. Maybe he was unapproachable. Maybe he was abusive. Maybe just totally absent. In such a case, I learned this from a student teacher back at St. John's Lutheran School back in the day when I went there in Seward, Nebraska. He said that maybe one way to overcome the lack of a father is to think of God as being everything you ever wished for in a father. In that way, God then can become the fulfillment of your dream and, and, and as an honorable and decent father who loves you unconditionally. So the beginning then of this prayer, and we're going to pray it later. You may think about it a little bit differently when you say our father in heaven. Wow, how cool it is. My dearest daddy in heaven. But it needs to be remembered that it's impossible. It's impossible to come to God as your father unless you're part of the family. You've got to be born into that family, and you were born into that family, many of you through baptism. Some of you are older converts, but you come to faith in Christ, and now you are a member of God's family. He is indeed your Abba, your Father in heaven, and Jesus now is your brother. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, when we begin our prayer, our Father, we begin with a prayer based on an intimate relationship that we can have. That of a father, that of a child. Now, if you take a look at the next uh, three petitions, sometimes people call them the thy petitions. I don't know if you ever heard that before, the thy petitions, because they all begin with thy. Uh, thy name be hallowed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So we're going to start with hallowed be your name. And what's Jesus trying to teach his disciples here? You see, when you say that, you're really kind of climbing to a whole new level of respect for God And reverence for his person. You are really kind of ascending to the very heights of who God is. So when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, when you pray, think about this. Think about your Father in heaven with whom you have an intimate relationship. Realize that God's presence is real in your heart. When you pray, Hallowed be your name, you place God on the very throne of your heart. And putting God on the throne of your lives. He He also, at the same time, sits on his throne in heaven. So how do we hallow God's name? Well, we do it certainly with our lips. Uh, we do it both privately and publicly by our actions. I mean, to pray that his name be hallowed means that first and foremost, we desire in our lives to reveal to others the name of Jesus and the character of God. But it also talks about your kingdom come. And when we pray that... Uh, This prayer recognizes that God's kingdom is not presently ruling on earth. Anybody notice that lately? That the kingdom of God does not seem to be flourishing everywhere. And the tense of this verse, uh, verb, you know, thy kingdom come, refers to a decisive time. I mean, Luther talks about this. There's a day we're going to pray thy kingdom come where we hope we see the clouds crack open. We hear the trumpets blow. We see the angels coming and God's kingdom comes back. So, in effect, we are praying for the second coming of Jesus. You're asking Jesus to come and establish his kingdom once and for all. You're looking forward to the climax of human history when God's will will be done on earth in the same way that it's done up in heaven. And you know something, friends, if we truly desire that to happen, then it also follows that we should pray that the kingdom of God comes into the heart of every other person who does not yet Know Jesus. I mean, Luther talks about it that way. Thy kingdom come. Come on, Lord, Lord, come on back. We're looking for judgment day. I often pray that He would come during my sermon so I don't have to finish it. <laughs> but I'm also praying that God would come into the hearts of all people who do not yet know Him. That's why when people say, Have you retired as a pastor? No one retires from the ministry. And every last one of you is in the ministry. Ministry is whatever you do for another person in the name of Jesus. We need to stop talking about pastoral ministry as if Larry's the only one who can do it. You're all ministers, which means you have a responsibility too to share the love of God and Jesus Christ with other people so the kingdom of God comes in their hearts so that at the end time when he actually does come, guess what? You bring a whole lot of people with you as well. Now, here's the third thing. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, sadly, untold millions of people down through the ages, uh, your will be done. They don't have the vaguest notion of what God's will actually is. And perhaps even more alarming is a lot of people in church Sunday after Sunday pray those words. You know, your will be done as it is in heaven without any intention of actually doing God's will. But when you ask that God's will be done in your life, you need to be willing to do it. Notice you're not asking God to change his will. You're not asking God to bless your will. You're only asking him, help me find it and then help me do it. But it's not enough just to know the will of God. Apply it. When I teach in prison, I often have people draw their hand and I said, "This is how to get a good grip on the Bible. You know, you need to hear the Word of God. You need to uh, you need to uh, study the Word of God. You need to memorize the Word of God. You need to meditate on the Word of God, you know, like that. But at the end, you gotta apply it. That's how you get a good grip on it. According to Romans twelve two, it's our privilege to submit to that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. And the truth is that everything that's going on in our world today." All the unrest, all of the frustration, all of the unhappiness, all of this sense of powerlessness, even in the lives of Christ followers, can be traced back to the fact that we are following our own self-will. I like to lay this challenge out. If you can ever find a word that begins with self that you think is a good word, let me know. I think it's not self-control, it better be god control. Self-importance, no, you better be important to God. See, at the back of all of our failures is to do it our way and not his way. We need to recognize that in our prayers that we're not approaching God. Jesus said, you know, when you pray, I'll tell you how to pray. By the way, don't pray for your will. Pray that God God's will has done you life. So in the first part of the prayer here, we're praying for God's glory. And we're going to now shift to praying for our needs. And I think that's very important that we learn to put God first in our prayers. You know, some of you have learned the ACTS, that you've got adoration, that you put God way up in front. You talk about who God really is before you ever get down to the part where you bring forth your request. But see, that's because God has a desire to meet your needs. He really does. Let's think about this one. Give us day by day our daily bread. Now, what does that really mean? I think we missed that, uh, the importance of this simple fact, because I think every last one of you here this morning, when you woke up this morning, none of you, absolutely none of you, had even the slightest doubt that you would be able to eat today. Most of your major concerns for the average Americans is not what we'll eat, but when we're going to do it again. Is he going to finish the sermon in time for us to beat the Baptist to the buffet? That's our that's our major that's our major concern. It was only when we used to live in Hong Kong that I think I ever had a concept, because every day we could walk down to Stanley Market and there all the Chinese people were buying their food day by day. When I teach in India, same way, day by day. You go to Nigeria, you go to Sudan, people in the market and the world, they're buying it day by day. How many of you can walk to your house and look in the freezer, the refrigerator, the pantry? The freezer downstairs, the freezer you have outside and say there's nothing in the house to eat. God wants to meet your needs. And then daily bread, understand, bread means a whole lot more than that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I love those, by the way. It stands for all the physical needs of our life. I mean, to pray this prayer for our daily bread expresses our conviction that God is actually able to to answer our prayers and meet our needs, that God is still able to do miracles. Somebody told me not long ago, they, didn't think, they thought the day of miracles had gone. And I said, wow, if the day of miracles are gone, it means that God no longer answers prayer. Wow. See, it's not that we're praying to overcome God's unwillingness, like God is some stinky guy sitting up in heaven who's holding on to all of his stuff and doesn't want to give it up. This is a God who wants to give it to us. But we pray that God would give it to us, that he would bless us. And the spiritual realm is just as true today, that yesterday's strength is absolutely useless to fight today's battle. Sometimes we, as Christ followers, rely on our experiences in the past. We fail to ask day by day for his blessings. Now, all of God's blessings are are very good. But, you know, this little phrase, this day, reminds us we need a daily reminder of spiritual strength. You know, we get stressed out. I don't know about you, but the days I get stressed out when I feel anxious are days when I have tried to face the problems of tomorrow today. Now, Jesus addressed that back in the Sermon on the Mount. You go back and read that in in Matthew. He says, do not worry. Say, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What shall we wear? I mean, how many of you went through that this morning? How many of you men, your wife said, does this look okay? How about these earrings? How about the? I'm sorry, Nance. I've, I've done my duty in Bellevue early this morning by telling you it all looked great. It said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things, all of this stuff we worry about is going to be it. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So when we worry about tomorrow, what are we telling our father? What are we telling our daddy? We're telling him, we don't think you can really provide. So we better worry about it today instead. This invitation to pray, give us day by day our daily bread, is an invitation to come to God with even those things that we might even call small or trivial. We're not just to bring the big whopper prayers, but even the little insignificant things. But let's also remember that the ultimate and only bread that will ever completely satisfy us is not found outside of peanut butter and jelly. It's the Lord Jesus himself who is the bread of life. John 6, verse 51, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, he said, which I shall give for the life of the world. By the way, that was an astounding thing for Jesus to say. Because the bread of life was what the scribes and Pharisees thought of was the scriptures. And Jesus was already saying, guess what? I am the fulfillment of that word. How about forgive us our sins? Oh, that's a good one. This petition is not only an explicit prayer for forgiveness, but I think we sometimes forget it's also to pray for a forgiving heart. For we also forgive those who are indebted to us. See, in our model prayer, we, we've asked God for provision. Now we ask for pardon. I don't know if you notice that forgive follows give. If you look back at verse 4 in the text, underline the word and because it links the request of daily bread and the request for forgiveness. In that way, when we think of our Need for food, we think about also our need for forgiveness. I mean, many people are conscious of their daily bread. But utterly unconscious when it comes to needing forgiveness. See, if we're, if we're really going to be sincere about pray, forgive us our sins, we also need to openly admit that we're pretty guilty of doing the same thing. We are sinners too. I mean, many falsely presume that once they're saved, they got nothing to worry about. They don't really ask much for forgiveness. Sees to me, we actually have a candidate running for a national office who said, Forgiveness? Why would I need to ask for forgiveness when I've never done anything wrong? Wow. See, it needs to be remembered that this is also a family prayer. It does not deal with the sins of unbelievers or with our standing before God, which has already been established. As salvation and can, it could ever be effective. Rather it concerns the sins of the children of God, which hamper our fellowship with our Abba, with our Father. See, true believers, if, if you count yourself today as a true Christ follower, you are not only forgiven, but you're also to be forgiving. That doesn't mean that forgiveness comes easily. Oh, n- not at all. Doesn't come naturally. It's always a battle, believe me, to have a forgiving heart. I can't even tell you how many times in my nearly 50 years of ministry, you know, teaching and pastoral ministry, where I've had somebody in my office say, Oh, I can't forgive them. I just can't. To which I look them in the eye and say, Are you telling me you won't? See, there's a big difference, isn't there? When you're saying, I can't do it, maybe you ought to be honest. You won't do it. See, Jesus didn't tell his disciples that you could pray, Lord, forgive me my trespasses, but by golly, I am not forgiven that clown who lives across the street. Because actually, when you think about that prayer, it actually says, forgive me my sins in the same manner in which I forgive the sins of others. Boy, there's a prayer that you better duck when you pray that one. He told them that when they had been forgiven they were to extend that same graciousness to other people. And it's here that we're touching on one of the, one of the principal causes, I think, of unanswered prayers. If, you, if you're doing a series sometimes like Why Aren't Our Prayers Answered, Larry, I'd say, this is one of the main principles. I mean, is it possible that, what, that anyone would truly have his own prayers go unanswered simply for the satisfaction of holding a grudge against somebody else? When we do not forgive, We place big roadblocks in our prayer life. That's what Jesus was teaching them. And lead us not into temptation. Now, it says, forgive our sins. The request was that sins already committed might be forgiven, but not here. And Lord, don't let me get involved in in new ones. I had enough trouble with the old ones. I don't need need new ones. But by teaching us to pray to God to lead us not into temptation, he's not suggesting that it's God who tempts us. I mean, James 1 says, God indeed tempts no one. Really, it's to accept the dangers of temptation, to acknowledge that sin is all around us, the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh. And we're asking, because we don't have strength to deal with it, that he would come and he would be in us. You know, the Holy Spirit, that resident president, to give us power to stand against all of that stuff that bothers us so much. We just need to acknowledge to our Father in heaven. Our great inability to handle temptation on our own. I don't know who it was who said, I can handle anything in life except temptation. Or maybe he said, I can resist anything in life except temptation. We need to remember everybody's vulnerable from the pastor through the parishioners, you name it. We're all vulnerable. And and although the strength of certain temptations I will grant diminishes as you get a little bit older, it never disappears. I will have to tell you about one of the dear ladies I remember visiting, one of our shut-ins, well into her 90s. And she said, Pastor, i got to tell you, getting old, there's some really good stuff that comes. I said, really, like what? She said, you just don't sin anymore.
1: <laughs> and I said, that's
0: one. And so she said, what? I said, it's called pride. You think you've arrived. We'll be sinning till the day we die. So when we pray for God's protection from temptation, we're agreeing with this high priestly prayer of Jesus. You already prayed today. He prayed, I don't pray that you take them out of this world, but that you would keep them safe from what? The evil one. So the second part of this is deliver us from evil. And the King James translates that way, but the New King James, I don't know, the ESV and other ones really say, deliver us from the evil one. Well, who is the evil one? Well, he's not your mayor. He's not your governor. He's not your president. He's not the guy who lives down the street. We're talking about Satan. And when you pray and use that phrase, you know, Lord, deliver me from from the evil one, you're admitting that your life is a struggle with an enemy that is far more powerful than you. And because we don't know what dangers we're going to face each and every day, we need God's protection to cover us. You know, when you get up in the morning and you say, this is the day the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it. You might as well add, and by the way, (laughs) cover me. I'm going in. Be with me. When you pray, deliver us from the evil one, you're turning your protection over, not to an earthly bodyguard, but to a heavenly bodyguard. Now, Satan may be the ruler of this present evil world. He is called the prince of the power of air. He has evil cohorts of all kinds of evil spirits at his command, but guess what? He has absolutely no claim over the children of God. One of my friends, a pastor, inmate pastor at Angola, one time he said, "I have this, I have this wonderful image, Doc." He said, and he said about getting into heaven someday, and they open up the Lamb's Book of Life, and and God says, he points out, he says, "There's your name." But Satan, who is always known as the accuser, is what? He's standing there and he says, but he was a horrible person. Don't you have a list of all the bad stuff he's ever done in life? Don't you know how bad he was? And God looks at the book and says, there was a lot of stuff written here, but it's so covered with blood I can't read it. Oh, man, that's going to stick with me a long time. The blood of Christ has covered all of our sins. He has no claim over us. Nor does he have the power to tempt anyone other than the Lord would allow. Go back and read the book of Job sometime. So, friends, I got a ball game to go to. No, I'm.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: this is my last point. To really learn about prayer, you must pray. When I first went out as a teacher, graduated from Concordia. Teachers College then in 1966, I went to my first church meeting and almost suffered a heart attack when at the end they said, let's have our new teacher close us in prayer. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I should have brought that book of prayers in with me. I have no idea what I moaned and groaned through that first time. But over the years, you know, what sometimes we say practice makes perfect. I always say practice makes permanent. Pray each day. Bring it before. I just want to challenge you to do that. Begin by thinking about your Father in Heaven. To focus on what it means to really talk to the God of the universe. Focus about His priorities. That His kingdom would come in the hearts of people who don't know Him yet. That God's kingdom would come back and take us all home. To focus on His purposes. That that His will would be done down here the same way it is up in Heaven. To focus on his provision, how he's blessed you every day with all that you have. And I'm looking here, five boys and three girls, is that right? Those are all yours?
1: Oh,
0: I, <laughs> I met somebody else this morning. Has five girls. I, I, whatever they are, if they're not yours, they're sitting in a row with you. you they belong to you right now.
1: <laughs>
0: how God has blessed you with them. Think about His pardon. Your sins are forgiven, and that pardon is extended to others. And finally, thank Him for His protection, that we are not led into temptation, that we have power over the evil one. I know that this morning we are going to pray the Lord's Prayer, and I pray that we pray it perhaps with a few new thoughts. Maybe Jesus has taught us all something this morning about how to pray. Amen.